Join me on the turning point up close and personal with leaders and get to know what makes their metal and fiber. I am Keshav Murugesh and I look forward to unraveling greatness with you. The Turning Point Podcast is now on Spotify. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, how you been? I'm okay. And according to news reports, Alabama is preparing to reopen buffets. So nature is healing, Leslie. That sounds horrifying. It it really does not necessarily sound like anything I think is a good idea, but I really like a good buffet and I really don't like Alabama. So this is very much a, a split emotion for me, but that's the thing I noticed on Twitter most recently before we started talking. So Alabama buffets. Well, I noticed that the Batman has COVID, which is definitely are we making bad jokes. Is it too soon? I don't know. I think it's probably too soon, but it's also an important reminder that all of the stories that you're reading about productions that are getting ready to begin again or that are even beginning again, they are one positive test from a lead actor away from being shut down for weeks or months. And so, you know, let's let's all be optimistic and hopeful that things are getting closer to starting again, but let's not hold our breaths. Yeah, I mean, Grey's Anatomy is going back in after Labor Day, and that's, you know, we've talked, we, you heard Krista Vernoff on our show a couple of episodes ago. She said that that's a huge deal for them to go back into production because, as you, we, we've noted before, they were among, if not the first show to shut down. So I think you're getting closer to seeing a unified set of protocols. Uh, news came this uh, this morning that American Crime Story impeachment is going to be get resume production this fall. Things are definitely starting to, to come back. Um, rumors that some scripted comedies are kind of come back. Those are, again, soundstage stuff uh, that, you know, I think the Chuck Lorre shows are going to come back or begin production the end of possibly the end of September. But yeah, it's things are starting. But yeah, it's, it's all very perilous. So. And none of that relates to any of this week's headlines or top five news stories. That would be what Dan calls a transition. Leading off this week's headlines, Dan, you want to take it from here? Absolutely. John Ridley and Carlton Cuse are teaming for an Apple limited series about Hurricane Katrina. The drama is based on the book that was previously earmarked to be the third season of Ryan Murphy's American Crime Story. Over at Fox, the network is developing an X-Files animated comedy as Fox continues to ramp up for a future in which it may not have Family Guy or The Simpsons. Elsewhere, Fox has also cast Suits grad Gina Torres as a series regular on season two of 911 Lone Star. Okay. ABC will air a two-part partially animated blackish special focusing on the upcoming election, and the network has also picked up a civil rights limited series titled Women of the Movement. Over at Netflix, Jamie Foxx and his daughter Corrine are teaming for a family comedy called Dad, Stop Embarrassing Me that is inspired by their own relationship. Arnold Schwarzenegger will star in a spy series that will be shopped to potential buyers. Also in early development is a new take on the former Freeform mega hit Pretty Little Liars from Riverdale boss Roberto Aguirre Sacasa. This week in cancellation news, AMC has axed Zachary Quinto vehicle Nosferatu after two seasons, and Paramount Network has pulled the plug on 68 Whiskey, with the latter's return impacted both by the cabler's new direction and circumstances related to the pandemic. 
In other news you might not know, Nosferatu and 68 Whiskey were both two TV series that existed. Trust me. <laughs> I'm just saying, people are probably not being tragedized by that. Uh, anyway, HBO Max is prepping a Fresh Prince reunion special. Let me read the headlines, Leslie. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go on. Go on. HBO Max is prepping a Fresh Prince reunion special that will stream in the fall, featuring, as you would expect, the cast reuniting. And HBO Max is, of course, home of the Fresh Prince show's full library. And wrapping up this week, crank up Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, because the pop star has signed a deal with Apple for what she is calling an innovative holiday special. And Matt, come on. Give me the soundbite. All I want for Christmas is you. Let's hear it. I don't think we have enough rights for that. You. Fair use. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off, it's been another big week for Netflix as the streamer continued to flex its muscle and content budget. This week, the streamer signed a sweeping overall deal with Prince Harry and former Suits star Meghan Markle, in which the royal couple will create and develop scripted and unscripted TV series, feature films, documentaries, and kids programming. The royal couple already has projects in the work, including an animated series celebrating inspiring women and a nature docuseries. So I guess the first question we want to ask here is, once you have Prince Harry and Meghan Markle looking for a TV deal at all, was there anywhere else they really could have gone at this point other than Netflix? I mean, in short, no. Um, I hear that they did take meetings um, across town. They met with Apple, which, ha of course, has a global platform, and I believe some execs at NBC Universal. But I think, you know, look, there's, there's no one bigger than Netflix. When you talk about global reach and what Netflix has started to represent for many TV consumers, it's the, the biggest place in town. Netflix is distributed in countries all across the world. They had the biggest head start of any streaming platform. Of course, they were the first one. But when you think about it, you know, yes, Apple has a global platform, but, but their business model is completely different than what Netflix is. Netflix wants to be an end-all, be-all for everything. While Apple has a, a few originals, some kids programming, some documentaries, some films, but they're mostly a, a service. TV Plus is mostly a service where you can watch content from other platforms. Like you can get the Showtime add on and you can get the HBO and you can stream all those shows there. But when you think about the rest of the, uh, these newly launched streaming services, Disney Plus, Peacock, HBO Max, none of these have really launched internationally yet. So that's why Netflix, a big reason why, why Netflix got Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. And, you know, when you think about it, too, they've got the biggest people in the world, right? They, they have the Obamas. And then in terms of the TV, uh, TV creators, Shonda Rhimes, Ryan Murphy, the Game of Thrones creators. It's, you know, they have a global platform and they have the opportunity to create and develop pretty much any kind of content that they want, which is a big draw for Ryan Murphy, too, going there. And speaking of those Game of Thrones creators, uh, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss have set their first project at Netflix as part of a vaunted and much discussed and speculated about nine-figure overall deal. They are teaming with the terror infamy showrunner Alexander Wu to develop the sci-fi drama The Three-Body Problem, which I have already ordered the book of from Amazon, ironically enough – which just means that Netflix needs to get into the sending Dan books business. 
executive producers on this project are a pretty massive list of names. I mean, you are talking Brad Pitt, Ryan Johnson, and Rosamund Pike. Why is this a big deal, Leslie? Well, this is a global property, right? This is, you know, I think it's a it's a book trilogy, right? So, it is. You, you know, when you've got Benioff and Weiss, who created arguably one of the biggest fantasy dramas of all time in Game of Thrones, this is their first project. You know, we know that they are not the, the type of showrunners like Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes who are going to juggle multiple projects at one time. They bailed on on Star Wars, right? Now they're doing this. This is going to be what Netflix hopes is their Game of Thrones, you know, even though they already have multiple versions of that, right? They have The Witcher and a couple other things. Umbrella Academy is a big deal for them. If you believe the Nielsen, the new Nielsen data that was released today, what they're hoping for is going to be a global property. As we discussed, Netflix is a global platform. They want content that can be a hit in multiple markets. And I'm sure they'll, they'll do voiceover dubs on, on whatever this one becomes or, or on whatever becomes of the three body problem. But this is basically their investment. They When they invest north of $200 million in Benioff and Weiss, you're not in asking these guys to come in and create 10 shows like Shonda has done or or like what Ryan Murphy has done and what Kenya Barris is starting to do. He's got, I think, three or four different things already in the works, plus films. You know, these guys are, are going to be the ones focused on one property at a time. And this is it. And when you look at the producers, wow, it's quite a list. One thing that's interesting in the Nielsen data chart that you just mentioned, which we are incredibly skeptical of in the way that we are skeptical of any information that comes out of Netflix, because it's all vaguely BS. And this came out of Nielsen, but it's still tied to Netflix. Uh, you had Umbrella Academy at the top of the list and by a vast margin. And then the next nine things on the list were all library titles. It, it was things like Criminal Minds. Yay, great. That's what you have Netflix for? Who am I to say no? Uh, and so that I find that interesting. And this is also a big week in terms of Netflix's ability to be a platform because a show that kind of splits the difference between being somebody else's show and being their show is a little show called Cobra Kai, which was, you know, people talked about it on YouTube. I think it would be silly to pretend that it was a show that was invisible, but it definitely was not a cultural phenomenon. But if you paid attention in the past week, man, Netflix has been getting the first two seasons of Cobra Kai out there. I mean, people are talking about that show suddenly in a way that they definitely were not talking about it on uh, on YouTube. Right. It's very much it's, you know, it's you moment. You know, we talked about uh, the lifetime, former Lifetime show from Greg Berlanti that aired its entire first season without many people noticing it at all. It didn't rate Lifetime and gave it an early season two renewal and then backtracked it. And Netflix, which had already signed on to be the SVOD home for season one of you, said, you know what, we're going to go out on a limb and we'll, we'll take it over as an original. They hadn't even released season one yet. They had no idea. They just said, well, Greg Berlanti, we know his shows play well for us. Sure, let's give it a shot. It's a, not a big, big buy. You know, it's a, obviously they're licensing it from Warner Brothers. And then it popped. And then they have season two as an original. And the same thing is happening here with Cobra Kai, except they had two seasons of a library and to really, you know, ramp up for season three, which I think is maybe later this year or, or next I, year. I, I think early next year is when it's lined up for. So, yeah, I think I definitely whatever appetite wedding one can do for such a thing. Netflix has done that. And and heaven knows any time I've gone to my Netflix homepage in the past week, basically, 
they have really wanted me to watch Cobra Kai again. And I, I just can't explain to the Netflix algorithm that I already watched it. But, you know, yeah. And whatever. I mean, what's interesting, you know, it, you know, if you look at the top, the Netflix top 10, which is, of course, measured on like what something like two minutes of viewership, Cobra Kai was number one there most of this week. You know, but to me, you know, the Cobra Kai, you know, like you is a great example of how Netflix has become a one stop shop for content for some cord cutters, you know, which is also, you know, a source of frustration for other networks and, and their competitors. You know, and when you think about it, too, if you look at, at that, the list of of Nielsen's top stream shows, it's stuff like Shameless, which is produced by Warner Brothers, which the minute that deal expires, you have to imagine it'll wind up over on HBO Max. The Office, which is, of course, going to Peacock next year and Grey's Anatomy, which it's owned by Disney, ABC Studios. So it's either Disney Plus or Hulu when that deal expires. So which, who knows when those deals expire? That's that's another story. <laughs> it is. <but laughs> and one that I don't a, want to think about for a while. <laughs> and, not, and not another story for this week's podcast. Number two. Up next, Dan, Labor Day is here. And with it, the unofficial end of summer. Well, I think it's the end of summer. I haven't really left my house in six months. Um, but it gives us an opportunity to look back at some of the hits and misses of the oddity that was summer TV during the pandemic, where we've seen a lot of networks and streamers undoubtedly have their plans turned upside down. So looking back at, at some of the big summer bows this uh, this season, you've got I May Destroy You, P-Valley, Perry Mason, Lovecraft Country, Ted Lasso, The Babysitter's Club. Um, what really stands out from you that you hope maybe Emmy voters and other awards branches keep in mind for the next award cycle? I think there have definitely been breakout hits this summer or breakout hits of a conversational sort. It's it's obviously hard to tell because a lot of the biggest shows either come from premium cable networks where the ratings tell a partial story or from Netflix, where, as we may have mentioned a time or two in the past, the ratings tell no story whatsoever. So, And even the uh, ratings on premium don't matter because premium, the business model is not total viewers, it's subscribers. Exactly. Uh, but it's still, it, is, it, it still makes me curious what the cultural reach of something like I May Destroy You might be because Michaela Cole's half-hour dramedy, in terms of quality, topicality, and coastal elite buzz, for whatever any of that's worth, I would say unquestionably was the hit of the summer and of a very particular type. I mean, this is a show that was a half hour show that HBO resisted the urge, desire, potentially the correct idea of putting out in, say, two episode weekly doses or something. And people kept talking about it. And, uh, you know, now it's all available and you can watch it all on HBO Max or on demand or whatever. And, and it's just a really good show. And it's a really good show that has a lot to say about the world that we're living in now. And it's a show that definitely puts Michaela Cole more on the map. I think Chewing Gum put her on the map and a couple other things she's done have made her a person to watch. But this says, you know, for heaven's sakes, pay attention. I think it's very notable how many of the summer's most notable and exceptional shows came from young black women. I think that is a a tremendous sign, both in terms of what's getting out there and what people are responding to. So P-Valley from Katori Hall, you can definitely listen to our chat with her from the podcast. One of my favorites. That would be uh, episode 78 from July. Excellent. I'm glad you have these things available. So, so yeah, you know, looking at the voices 
that are getting out there and the voices that are getting out there in this particular moment where we need to hear those voices. Uh, you know, Misha Green is not a newcomer because she'd worked in TV for a long time and uh, Underground is one of my favorites. Uh, but you can also listen to our interview with Misha Green. What episode is that in, Leslie? Episode 82 from August. Excellent. And Lovecraft Country is is just a it's it's a messy show, but it's a messy show in such an entertaining and provocative way. It's it's a show where you really can't be ambivalent towards it. And I, I love that about it. And I, I love that about it almost as a contrast to the shows that are maybe a little bit easier to be ambivalent about. It's totally possible to be ambivalent about Perry Mason uh, if that's what you choose. It is a show that, to me, has a lot of very good things going for it. It's beautifully produced. Uh, Matthew Reese is always good. The supporting cast is exemplary. But, you know, it felt like the buzz for that kind of came and went. And I definitely know that there are people who who really enjoyed that show. Again, always anecdotal and through Twitter and whatnot. But I, I know that people dug that show. But I don't know that it has the same passion from the people who dug it as I May Destroy You, as Pea Valley, as Lovecraft Country. So I, I think to me, those three shows I just mentioned are really the defining shows of the summer and really the defining shows of this moment that we're in. Those are important shows. And you can go back and listen to our interview with the Perry, Mo Perry Mason creators from episode 75 in June. Indeed. We talked to a lot of interesting people this summer. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully we talked to them interestingly as well. <laughs> uh, and, and guess what? I'm going to mention another show uh, that we talked to the creators of. Um, you know, there's some, still something to be said for kind of more down the middle shows in familiar tried and true genres. So something like Ted Lasso is a show that I think people have a lot of affection for. And it's it's a big hearted, optimistic underdog sports show that knows exactly what it is. And I believe you're a fan of that one. I am. Uh, we we spoke with Bill Lawrence about that uh, in episode 81. Uh, if you want to go back and listen to that, it's basically, you know, look, I, I, I love a good sports movie and, and Ted Lasso is basically major league, but with football or soccer, you know, for me, I, I wasn't ready to like that show. I didn't think it was going to be for me. And then it was filled with so much heart and so much optimism that it wound up being the show that I needed the most this summer because I was just, I haven't been in a good place with the, with the pandemic and everything else. It's just, you know, I, I'm technically on vacation this week, so I'm still doing the pod, the pod but you know, I needed to clear my head and that, that show helped me get to a place where I actually felt like there was some good in the world. And, you know, for that, I'll always be grateful for that. I, I think there are a lot of, of familiar genre shows this summer that were done fairly well that I think fit comparable needs. Like the Babysitter's Club is not going to be for everyone. And I want to raise the possibility I may not have been the target demographic for that show, but I still devoured that show and, and found it hugely appealing uh something like teenage bounty hunters on netflix it is it is a genre show with a very exploitative title but it's also a show with a good amount of humor a good amount of heart and that you can just settle in and chill out and watch and i think it's nice to have more confrontational shows like i may destroy you p valley and lovecraft country where it's hard to be ambivalent towards those and i think you can really be ambivalent towards babysitters club or ted lasso or teenage bounty hunters but i like the idea that there are places for all of those shows in the landscape and 
then, of course, that's before you get to all of the unscripted stuff. Uh, You know, for me, honestly, it's possible that the best show of the summer really and truly was uh, Immigration Nation on Netflix, which is a tough one for me to watch because it is a thoroughly unpleasant piece of viewing because it basically focuses on how horribly broken our international immigration system is. But it's important and it's powerful and it's extraordinarily humane. I feel the same way about the most recent season of Last Chance U. Um, And I feel the same way about sort of all of these great food shows that are out there. I've mentioned Taste the Nation with Padma Lachmi. That that to me is just a, a big hearted good show that actually has meaning and value. And so, yeah, you know, I think I think we were very worried as this summer began that there wasn't going to be anything to watch. And I think ultimately we were able to comfortably allay those concerns. (laughs) Yeah, most definitely. And it doesn't sound like there's going to be anything most definitely. And it doesn't feel like there's going to be any sort of a content dry spell as the, as fall comes closer, you know, um, as fall approaches, I'm botching this horribly, most definitely. And it doesn't sound like there's going to be any sort of of content dry spell as we get into fall, when you've got some of the the broadcast shows going, going back into production. Now, a lot of them, as we discussed in last week's episode, targeting a November return. So, but wrapping up, I just do, I do want to give a, a big shout out to Ted Lasso, because again, like I said, it's, if you need some good optimistic, viewing it's it fills your heart and for me p valley was one of my favorites this summer and and i don't get to nearly as much content as you do dan but and i'm also not a critic so take make of this what you will but i really love p valley it was not it was unlike anything that i'd seen on tv before and i just devoured it thankfully we were lucky enough to get get screeners but i watched the whole series in a weekend when i was just planning on watching the pilot and well that's what happened. So anyway, for more summer hits and misses, be sure to check out the critics conversation on THR.com with Dan and our fellow TV critic, Ingu Kang. Number three. Up next, it's time for another mailbag segment. Reminder, if you have questions that you would like to hear us address on the show, please email us at TV's top five. That's the number five at THR.com. And if we don't read your questions, sometimes it's really just because things kind of get lost and something pops to the top. But keep asking your questions. We love getting them. We love hearing from you. So up first, friend of the five, Chris, asks, and only somewhat seriously, but it's still, I think, actually an interesting question. With Zack Snyder's Justice League cut being split into four hour long chunks, does that make it a limited series? And would that allow it to qualify for the Emmys in this category next year? You know, I think it's a great question. Um, And I posed it to THR's great awards analyst and awards chatter host, Scott Feinberg, who said that if it's premiering on TV and it's significantly different from the theatrical version, he doesn't see why not. So basically, if it depends on how different it is and if it's extremely different than what was released in theaters, we could have Justice League and Zack Snyder getting an Emmy nomination. But again, you know, and Dan, you can speak to this, too. The limited series category is a tough one to crack into. Yeah, I, you say we could, but that does not mean that we would. And and I think what Scott brings up is very clearly the correct point is that there's going to need to be an actual discussed reckoning regardless regarding how much of the footage in this thing actually was in the theatrical release that people are now distancing themselves from. And if the answer is 
I don't know if it's 60% new footage, if it's 75% new footage and it's been reformatted and edited in a different way, that does feel to me like something that ought to be eligible, uh, whether it's of any quality and, you know, can get nominated. That's a completely different question. But yeah, it's it's going to involve somebody needing to make a very specific determination of percentages, I think, and someone saying this is not the theatrical release this is a new thing for streaming with hour long chunks. Ergo, it's eligible. So it will be an amusing. I don't know if it's an interesting question, but it's an amusing question because people definitely online will be talking about it. And if that's not the same as an Emmy nomination or Emmy campaign, I don't know what is. It's a good question. It's because. It's a strange and silly project that we're going to be talking about probably far beyond the reach of its quality. <laughs> yeah, well, um, our next question comes from Twasif, who asks, what happened to first run syndicated serialized scripted shows like Xena and Deep Space Nine? It's an interesting question because it relates to several different things, and it definitely just reflects the shifting television landscape. So the the first and most basic answer is that popular syndicated shows existed in large part in the 70s and 80s and early 90s because there were a large number of unaffiliated broadcast channels that needed programming. And, and so that was a way to fill programming on those channels. But as Fox came in and scooped up a certain number of those, and as the WB and UPN which eventually became the CW, came in and scooped up more, there were fewer and fewer outlets of that type for that type of programming to go to. And then at roughly the same time, cable blew up and then streaming blew up. And so those became the avenues for those particular types of show. If you were doing something like Star Trek Next Generation, which was a syndicated show when it aired, you would not take it through the syndicated realm these days. You you just wouldn't. There wouldn't be the money to do that show right. So you would take it to you take it to CBS All Access is where you'd take it because that's the home I mean, of all come things. On. <laughs> that's the home of all things Star Trek. But you'd still you'd, you'd take it hypothetically in a different era to Sci-Fi Channel. You'd take it to Netflix, Amazon, whoever. You you just would never attempt to mount it yourself as something without a distribution because you just wouldn't do that. And so we haven't had a scripted first run syndication show of the Xena or Deep Space Nine type since the Sam Raimi Legend of the Seeker drama, however many years ago that was, feels like a million years ago, and it just wasn't successful enough for it to be a thing. So it's it's sort of the combination of different factors, starting with the number of unaffiliated broadcast stations disappearing, but then the fact that there are just so many other places for these things to exist. So a lot of shows that, you know, pop up on, on sci-fi today in a different era might have headed in the syndication direction they just don't anymore yeah and a lot of those are are acquired shows from from other territories like winona earp is not a homegrown show it's a canadian show that sci-fi licenses to air here so um you know and and while we're talking about it you know fx tried um, a different model um a few years ago it was the 1090 model um with a show called anger management with charlie sheen where they greenlit the, the the show for 10 episodes. And if it worked, they it immediately triggered a 90 episode pickup. 
and you know it they you know they filled with it for i think a couple of years and then it didn't you know didn't really go anywhere and and obviously charlie sheen kind of imploded and it became yeah, they, what it became yeah the the debmar mercury model of of 1090 shows had its brief moment and i don't know that any of them were successful much less rousingly successful i i you know i think that fx wouldn't tell you it was a mistake to have done anger management but i also don't think fx would tell you that it was a hugely lucrative success for them to do anger management it was it was something that they tried and you know i i I wonder how many people there are out there who actually watched the entire series run of anger management because there were a lot of episodes of that show and i'm fairly confident i watched three of them so <laughs> that's three more than me, Dan. Uh, you know, it had to be had to be discussed on a past podcast or past reviews or something. There was there was some justification why I had to sit through a few of them, but not any more than that. Yeah. And our last mailbag question for the week comes from Dan in Sydney, who is curious about Disney's international Hulu like service. Uh including when it will launch and if it will be branded for Star. And a bonus question asks what the status of NBC's long-discussed Northern Exposure reboot is. What say ya? Well, I'm going to take the easy one first. So the Northern Exposure sequel that was in the works at NBC with original star Rob Morrow back in late 2018, yeah, it's dead. Um, That's new information, so make of that what you will. Um, as for your central question is, you know, what what the status of Disney's international platform is like? Well, Disney CEO Bob Chapek announced in early August that Star would launch overseas in 2021. He didn't, however, specify when next year or how much it will cost per month or what countries it would be available in. He did note that it would include content from Disney's portfolio, ABC, FX, Freeform, Searchlight, 20th Century Fox, etc., one big thing it will not have is content that is licensed from other studios. So if it's a show that's owned outside of Disney, don't expect it to air internationally on Star as those rights are increasingly reverting back to their own corporate owners who, just like Disney, are looking to do the exact same thing that, that they're doing here, which is broaden out their service and launch internationally. So I hope that answers your question. The, in short, sometime next year with Star... More than that, we don't know. And a definitive answer on Northern Exposure. Tell there your you, friends. There you go. And a reminder, if you, once again, if you have questions you'd like to hear us discuss on upcoming episodes, drop us a note at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. Number four. Next is our showrunner spotlight segment. This week, however, it is not a showrunner. It is a directing producer. Our guest is Mo Marable, directing producer on Hulu's Woke. Marable directed the second, third, and fourth seasons of IFC's Brockmire in their entirety. And seriously, if you haven't watched that, what up with that? We've told you to a thousand times. And before that, he worked on shows including Insecure, The Last OG, and Lodge 49. He also famously directed the original title sequence to HBO's Big Love. So now you have the Beach Boys stuck in your head. Welcome to the podcast, Mo. Well, thank you for inviting me on the show. So getting started, there's a lot of key creative forces here. You've Marshall Todd and Keith Knight creating and Jay Dyer as showrunner. And you, of course, is the producing director. But can you talk a little bit about how all those pieces came together and and how did those creative conversations go? That's, there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. Yeah, no, there, there, there are a lot of forces uh, to, to, to make woke work. Um, 
for me, it, it, it started with, you know, this is Hollywood. So, you know, my ancient, my agent, uh, you know, got the script and, and was like, Mo, I really think you should read this. This is, I think this is really, really good. And I read it and I was blown away by the pilot script. I, I thought it was, it was great. It was smart. It was, um, you know, people right now are talking about it's timely. Um, but the truth is, is that that is a recurring nightmare, right? That's been going on for decades. So, you know, for, for, you know, that just seemed like a fresh, when I first read it, which was about a year and a half ago, two years ago, it was just a fresh take on it. It was just a, a fresh POV. And so I loved it so much. I came in, truth be told, there was another director already vying for it. And I just went full on and, and just pitched him my, my idea, my version, my vision, how I saw the animation, how I saw the colors, how I saw pre-woke versus after-woke. And, um, and it eventually landed in my lap. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it was great. And, and, and so, you know, Keith, the thing about Keith Knight is this is all inspired by Keith Knight and Keith Knight's work. Uh, as you already know, he's a cartoonist and Keith had a real POV, uh, obviously. And, you know, it, it was more about listening to Keith and then finding out how to mold his creativity, right? How to, how to put that, uh, in a television show and how to make it work. You know, you know, he's used to working in strip form. And so, you know, there was just a lot of conversation about character development. You know, there were certain characters that I think were a little closer to him that we had to modify. And you can always see him in the room kind of, you know, um, but, you know, we still have to make television. And Marshall is just a fabulous jokester. He really brought to life. Uh, there's a character called Clovis and he really brought Clovis to life. He really, he really gelled it. He really brought it together. There was Keith, you know, and his inspiration and his experiences. And then there was Marshall who brought this together, like who made it into a story. And then, and then Jay came on and was really instrumental about making sure episode to episode, we were just weaving it in the right direction and it was all making sense. He was very, very much the, the, the story engine on that part. But at the end of the day, it was really Keith who, who, was, who was pushing the narrative. Well, how much of this is Keith's real story? Where did you guys want to deviate? What did he take kind of particularly personally that he wanted to make sure got on screen? And what didn't he want on screen? I think... Um you know, how can I, <laughs> how can I say, uh, I don't know. I mean, like what, what, like what happened to him with the police is a real thing. Did it happen exactly like that? Not necessarily, you know, but it happened like, you know, he was putting up flyers and the whole thing went down. The roommates are all based on real roommates of his, you know, one of the roommates, um, Blake, which Blake Anderson plays, you know, that's, that's a real person. Clovis is a real person. We did have his, his, his future wife in the show at one point. And I think that was a little close. So, you know, so every time you'd write something, every time we'd come up with something, you go like, no, but she would never do that. And you go, okay, okay. You know, no, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't drink water. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, he, he would never be that literal, but, you know, so I think, you know, there were just, there were just, I'm, I'm going to use the word inspired instead of true story. Right. <laughs> because if you look back at Keith's work, 
his his strips, he really talks a lot about racial injustice. He talks a lot about police treatment of of, of black people. And so, yeah, he, you know, I, I would say it's more inspired than it is literal. And as you say, this is sort of the, this is the perpetual nightmare more than it is this exact moment. On the other hand, maybe the conversation is more a conversation that we're ready to have at this moment. Maybe it's a conversation we're being forced to have more at this moment, obviously. But as you guys have been living in the world for the past four months and being conscious of the show that you had coming out, what was your thought process regarding how it was going to play and how it might play differently at this moment versus seven months ago, maybe? You know, seven months ago when we, you know, we actually started working on the show about a year and a half, two years ago. And, and, you know, then we thought we were playfully kind of educating people. You know, we wanted to do something that was make people think, and we still want to make people think. But what has changed is that people's awareness of police brutality is now very front and center in America, right? It's, you're not... You know, and and in our show, it's still a comedy. And in our show, you know, he doesn't get shot by the cops, you know. So there was a moment where it was like, are we, are we appropriate? You know, I mean, people are seeing things that are much more horrific than what, what we're portraying. And do we want it to come off as too light? You know, so there was a thought process to that. But when you really sit back and you look at it, you go... Well, this story is always going to be relevant. Not everybody has the same experience, right? And, and the idea that for the reason he got um, picked on by the cops was something that's very minor, which actually, no matter whether they, you know, but they pulled guns on him in our show and they pulled a gun on him in real life. And there is a trauma that comes with that. There is a, 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 um, a trauma to the idea that I could have died and I have no power. I, there's nothing I can do about it. And I think that's real no matter what. And so at the end of the day, it all still made perfect sense. And, uh, and it, it, it's still a conversation that needs to happen. You know, the, the show opens with a quote that says, inspired by one experience, shared by many. You know, you just, you mentioned that there was a, a thought process that went into how light this was or the process of it being too light. Can you talk a little bit about what that process was? I mean, were there people who were saying, who were concerned maybe that, that it comes off as a little bit too light, that it's not really going there, especially at, at this moment in our culture? You know what? I will, I will, nobody came back to us and said, you're being too light. Right. I think that was more of internal amongst us to say, like, are we tonally appropriate right now? And our partners, Hulu and, and, and Sony, have been masterfully wonderful. They have, at every stage, as far as, especially once we started delivering the show, have been just very supportive if, you know, about, about tone, about what we want to say, uh, how much input they wanted to give. Because, you know, they really wanted us to tell our story. And I think it was just amongst us just questioning, making sure that we were, we were being appropriate. And I, I think once we all looked at it one more time, we were like, yes, we are. We were being very appropriate. And also people need to laugh a little bit. People need to, to, to smile a little bit. And this is not a show that, you know, you're going to go, uh, wow, they solved all the problems. Wow, I totally understand. Wow, I'm there. I, you know, I am woke now. That's not what the show is about. You know, 
this this show is really about this one person's journey and this one person's experience and who happens to be an artist and 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 his world gets turned upside down and it's surreal and magical and things come to life all to just inform him on the injustices of the world. And, you know, when we set out to make the show, the show is not just supposed to be about race. And, and hopefully we'll get a second season and, and show that it, race is just one thing. It's like to be woke, somebody could become woke by how they, how they treat women, how they treat people uh, of different nationalities, how they treat other men. You know, like, like wokeness is not a racial thing. It's about understanding what's wrong and trying to do the right thing. Right. And, and waking up to the injustices and waking up to the to the hypocrisies of, of how we're living. So, you know, this show is not about just race. Well, part of the plot of the show is that Keith is coming to this realization, perhaps late, that he's behind the curve to some degree. Is that true of Keith as well? Like, does he admit this was something that he that he came into a little behind the curve? You know, I. No, I think that's a very what you just brought up, uh, Daniel, is uh, is is very tricky. Right. And and we really, really try to hone in on that. You know, there's this idea that our main character was slightly oblivious to everything. Right. And then he gets, you know, the police happen and then now he's suddenly, you know, activated. And and the truth is, is that for a lot of people like myself or, you know, sometimes when when life is going good, you don't think about the problems. Everything seems to be, you know, and that's all it was. You know, he just wasn't, from a personality standpoint, he knows what's going on. He just, that wasn't what he was engaging in. He was engaging in, 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 in making people laugh or making people smile. That was just his POV. And it, so he was aware of what the police were doing. He was aware of all that. And I think in the pilot, he, he, he makes a statement, I just didn't think it would happen to me, right? I thought it would happen to somebody like Clovis. And a part of that thinking comes down to, I'm doing everything right, right? I, I, I'm moving through the world. I, I'm successful. I don't seem threatening. I don't seem this way. And it still happened to me, right? So maybe on that level, he lost touch a little bit, right? He lost touch on the fact that he is equal to everybody else. But the fact that, um, that he was unaware is not the case. It was just that he just wasn't paying attention to it. And at the same time, you know, we are in a point where people who weren't activists find themselves in that position now because, you know, for whatever, for myriad reasons, right? For, you know, for me, I'm not outspoken about this stuff, about anything really, because I, I'm a reporter and I'm trained to kind of keep, you know, remain impartial, et cetera. But even I can't do that anymore. Right. So knowing that this is the world that we are living in now, as you start to think about plans for season two, you, you mentioned earlier that you hope that, that that's something that you get. But I mean, how are you thinking about what woke season two would be considering this moment in time and considering the state of the world now? Well, I think, I think one, we're called woke. And I think, I think it's hard. I think you, for us, Keith has to make the next step. Right. He has to become an activist to a degree. He has to not right now. He's finding his way through. He's bumbling through. Right. He's making mistakes. He doesn't know. He's trying to figure out who he is, who he is as an artist. What is his voice now? How does he even use that voice? How does he use his superpowers? And 
So I think season two is it will be about activating those superpowers and actually purposefully going out there and being an activist, you know, and trying to rally people, you know, and then what comes with that? In the pilot, we talk about woke equals broke, you know, and, and the idea of his roommate telling him, you don't want that woke shit. You know, you you don't want to be woke. Uh, woke equals broke. And that that came from an idea of Colin Kaepernick. Right. The idea that you can go out and say something and that is right and justified and people villainize you for it. You know, you become a villain and, and you don't make any money and, <laughs> and, and you get fired. Right. And so we explore that kind of thinking in the first episode. So in the first season. Yeah. <laughs> And you mentioned that when you came in and you were pitching, you had a specific idea of how to handle the animation, because that's the thing we haven't talked about yet, is that yeah. part of the conceit of the show is that this cartoonish, cartoonist begins to have conversations with inanimate objects all around him, uh, voiced by a wonderful assortment of celebrities. What was your pitch for how you saw the animation blending into this world? Yeah, you know, my pitch for the animation in this world was how can we make it of this world? And I, I feel like I was like, I don't want to do Roger Rabbit. I don't want to do Son of Zorn because the moment you see 2D animation, flat 2D animation, it's all, it's not just a fantasy, it's just untethered to, to, to the world you're in. And so my pitch was, let's use real objects. If it's, if it's 40 ounces talking, and then let's use real 40 ounces with real stuff inside. And then let's put the animation in the design on top of that. You know, the trash can, you know, for, for those who've seen the, the, um, the trailer or, or, or seen the pilot, there's a talking trash can. And we put a real person in that trash can, you know. So it was all done with puppetry. Um, because I wanted the camera to not be hinged on special effects, not to be thought of like, I can't move it. I can't talk to it like a real thing. So we use puppeteers for most of the uh, animation elements. Huh. Yeah. And what was your thought process regarding how much or how little the show needed to use those animation elements to be distinctive? Uh, if, if there was a thing, if they didn't have a thing called a budget, uh, <laughs> If 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 they would have said Mo, there would be a lot more in, in these shows. But I think we have the 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 right amount. And I think, yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm being very candid in the sense of you can't do everything because there's not enough money to do everything. And so we we kind of came down to a real balance of uh, when do we need it, why do we need it, and what is it saying when we use it. And the thing about the animation is. It's it's Keith's subconscious, right? It's it's Keith's conscious, and and it's talking to him in a way that that is just informing him. It's letting him know what's going on around him. The things that he would not have ever said before, it's going to say for him, you know. So he may have thought those things when he goes into the barbershop and sees these uh, white hipsters who have co-opted the barbershop and kept it as a black theme barbershop, and he walks out and. And his internal thoughts are happening, but the trash can is there to say it. And, 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 and I think it's easier for people and the audience to accept animated objects saying things like that than it is for real people to say things like that. 
You know, and at the, at the same time, you know, that, you know, obviously the animated objects are his, his subconscious, right? But, right. you know, on another level, how did you want to approach how viewers are supposed to look at what Keith is going through in terms of mental health and, and particularly yes. in terms of, of stigmatizing mental health problems in the black community? That's very important. That's very important to me. Mental health in the black community and mental health when it comes to black men, I think, is also something else. Men... In general, regardless of race, one, we don't like to go to doctors. We already know what the problem is. We'll just walk it off. You know, our, 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 our male ego gets in the way. But when it comes to the black community, mental health is a real stigma. People don't want to talk about it. People don't go to therapy. And also, it's not a, it's, it's an elective. It's not something that's forced, right? So, People don't want to spend money on that. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of issues behind that. But the show itself, we wanted to show, the, again, the mental health aspects of this and the trauma and how does one person deal with it. And if you watch this, the entire season, it feels as though we kind of don't talk about it. It feels as though he gets up and next day he's going to work. But that's what people do. They get up and they try to just keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. And as the series goes on, you start to realize that the trauma was real. There's little moments of hints that keep coming out, keep coming out. And then eventually he blows and, and, and realizes he needs help. That's kind of where we, we take the, the season to, where he needs help. And, and it helps him get to a place to actually tackle the issue with the cops. Yeah, I mean, it was very important for us to talk about that and... But it was also very important for us to talk about it in a way that wasn't preachy, that wasn't um, righteous, you know, uh, and, and, and also kind of honest. And what I mean by that is not talking about it is a weird double sword here. You know, not talking about it is a part of how people deal with it until they can't. Now. There's also a plot line, you know, in terms of kind of the catchphrases that we use to discuss things, uh, there is a plot line in the first season about Keith experiencing cancel culture. Yes. And obviously that's a concept that started on black Twitter. It's, you know, it is, it is a part of this world, but that's another thing where if you look out at how the terminology has come to be used in the world around us, it's kind of been appropriated in a less than positive way, as we saw with the Republican convention last week. <laughs> Does that give you any pause when you sort of hear that and you go, OK, that's not how we want to talk about it? Or, or you know, can we reclaim that conversation somewhat? Well, you know, I, I I question whether it's a conversation that the black community should own. Right. I, I, I think the idea of cancel culture I mean, look, I have a couple of opinions. Like one, I think it's, 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 it's dangerous, right? I think it's, it's very dangerous because there's a lot of power in cancel culture, which means is that uh, there's no empathy and there's no forgiveness and there is no rehabilitation, right? And, and I think, so I'm always a little mindful of anything that means that uh, you are canceled forever and, we, and, and you are no longer valid, I think that's that's a that's not a great thing. And I think in the show, the cancel culture is more about he didn't really get a chance to even get inside the culture, right? <laughs> Before he got canceled. And and he doesn't stay canceled forever, but it's the idea of how fickle 
political thinking can be. I mean, he, he sets off to do the right thing, you know, in his mind. He sets off with this idea of, uh, of, of activating art by, by putting up something called Black People for Rent on a flyer. And, but he didn't think it all the way through. So the idea that who's allowed to wear that T-shirt when you put it on, right? It says black people for rent. And on one hand, it, it, it feels very powerful and very um, um, prideful, right? But then you put it on uh, a friend of yours uh, who happens to be white and it's like black people for rent. It's like, what the fuck? What, what, do you, what, what do you say? Are you down with renting black people? You know, um, and, and any time that... How can I say this that, that makes sense is that there's two sides to every argument, right? And there's two sides. And, and the idea of him thinking about it only from his perspective is where he failed, right, in that. You know, uh, he didn't see what happens when you unleash that into the whole world and not just his community. And, and, and he gets counseled for it. And, you know, and, and the thing that we were going to do on that show uh, which we touch on, but the idea that for some people, they really did need a job. And, they, you know, so when it says black people for rent, we can put, um, we can make sure there are black people at your party. We can make sure there's black people in your board meeting. We can make sure, you know, but you know, the thing about, like I said, there's a, there is a, a weird thing also in America where companies actually do that, you know? They actually will. You can be in a meeting, and if it's a and if it's something to do with black culture, all of a sudden there's a black executive, you know, that you've never seen before, you never talked to, and they don't really say nothing. They're just there, you know. Like so, that is these are these are all based on real experiences. Um, yeah. And on, on that note, when you guys had note when you got notes back from from Hulu and from your studio Sony, did you have executives who were black? You know, this is, look, uh, when we were actually shooting the show, we had a, um, our, our main contact at, at Sony is, is a person of color. Uh, and, and, and she was, she was great. She was smart. She's, you know, um, her notes were, were great. Um, but throughout the process, I would say 90% of the meetings that we would go into, we would be the, the creators and myself would be the only people of color in the meeting. And so I think that is one of the challenges in Hollywood right now is, you know, we can all right now talk about, you know, we got to do more, you know, and we got to, you know, um, we got to have more representation. You know, we're going to have more black directors on shows that are not necessarily black. We're going to also make sure uh, women are represented, women directors and, and, and all this stuff and, and, and more shows that are geared towards people of color. But at the end of the day, we still do not have representation across the board where people can green light stuff, where people can say, yeah, I want to tell this story. We as African-American storytellers still have to ask permission to tell the stories we want to tell, right? And we still have to make sure it goes and it fits into a system and it fits into this. And when you get your notes back, nine out of 10 times, those notes are not coming from somebody who looks like you or somebody who is even a part of the culture. And I'm not saying you have to be black to be a part of the culture. You know, it depends on where you grew up and how you grew up and all those things, you know. So, but I would say that it's very, very um, rare 
to be in a room and there are a lot of people of, of color there, there's usually none, are one. And, and they don't have the, the big voice. Were there notes that, that you got back where you said, no, 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 you're, you're missing something here. And let me tell you why we're not going to change this. Uh, yeah, yeah, of, yeah. I mean, you know, I, of course. I mean, like, look, it, it, the, the, the challenge is, is that when you, when you also don't have people of color uh, in those positions, what happens is the, the nuance of, of, of what you're doing is lost, right? Questions are getting asked and you realize that you have to explain those things. So people start asking for like, well, why does he do this? Or why is he going to the barbershop? Or why? Like, what? Like, he's going to the barbershop, you know, and, and everything wants to be explained. And how do we explain it in the script? And so you start to find out, you start to realize, and I, and, and I honestly don't believe that it is malicious. I just think that sometimes they want it explained and, and then they want it explained in the script. Right. And you're going like, you know, no, the audience that we're actually talking to doesn't need that, doesn't need that layer. So we got to take that layer out. And you have to have a leap of faith. You just got to believe that that's the right thing to do. You know, is there an example uh, that you have of that? It was going to the barbershop. It was it was literally there was a thing like, why is he going to the barbershop? We need to explain why he's going to the barbershop. And and it had more to do with the context of him going to talk to his barber about what's going on with him. Right. And and if you're not of that world, you don't understand. Well, why would you go talk to your barber? You know, like. This is really, you know, he should go talk to somebody. And so having to break that down and explain that that's your barber is your therapist. Right. You know, there are other people in your community who play that role and are, are somebody to talk to who's not your friend who you think may judge you. So you go talk to, you know, like for some people, they go talk to their bartender. Yeah. You know, he's going to go talk to his his barber. So, yeah. So there there are little little things like that. So we can't have you on the podcast without talking at least a little bit about Brockmeyer because we are very large <laughs> Brockmeyer fans here. Um, and baseball fans, yes. Be before you started on that show, you'd had sort of the normal path of a TV director, doing a couple episodes of a show and moving on to the next. What was the simpatico that you had with Hank Azaria and with Joel Church Cooper that made you feel like you wanted to be on that one for three solid seasons? You know what? The first season was more of a, the first season that I came on. One, season one was so good. And I didn't work on that. And when I watched that, I was so impressed. I was just so impressed. I was so impressed with Joel. I was so impressed with Hank. And so when they, you know, when I sat down with them and they wanted to see what I'd do the next season, um, a part of it was just an endurance test. I was like, can I actually do this? You know, can I actually make eight episodes? And also, to, if, if you don't already know, we shot the entire season between 21 and 24 days. You know, yeah. That's so, unheard of. And so there was, it was more of, of this gear inside of me as can I make a good show under these circumstances? But also Joel's writing is so, so good. And it's, and, and Hank is so, so great. And so together, I think the, the three of us, what was beautiful about that relationship is that we all kind of really, in a weird way, we all knew our lanes, right? So Joel would just write this amazing season. Me, Hank, and 
would then read the scripts. And if we had any notes, I had my notes to be from a director standpoint and from a story standpoint, what can we actually produce? What can we actually get done? And Hank was always from character, character, story, character, character. And then we'd come together, we'd noodle it, and then we'd go off and make this show. And I tell you, the easiest part about that show for me was just turning the camera on Hank. Because once Hank, you know, his process is beautiful. He knows every line of every script before day one. So he has it all memorized. So for me, that takes so much pressure off. And, and, uh, and it puts all the pressure on all the co-stars and all the people because, like, if Hank can know the entire season, don't, don't, don't come in here, man. <laughs> you know, but what was also beautiful about that show was that it was, it always talked about social, you know, we, were in, we did social commentary. You know, baseball was just a backdrop. It was really about America and it was really about what's going on. And that's what was, was beautiful about it. And um, I'm sad that it, obviously you, you all saw season four. I'm sad that it actually came true. Like, like there is a weirdness <laughs> that I go, holy shit. I remember reading it going, wow, Joel, you really went there. Like, this is this is kind of crazy. Cut to it's happening. So yeah, that I I that I love that show. When you have an experience like that and you you know you have that level of consistency and and collaboration and then a show like this where it sounds like you had a similar level of collaboration, how does that make you approach going off and doing a one-off or two-off directing stint? Is that something that still has appeal to you or or not? It does. It really does uh for me, you know, you know, like, you know, yeah. So right now I've moved into this lane where I can come in and I can do a whole series. Right. Or, you know, uh, I can. Uh, and also I'm an ex line producer. So me managing production is something I know how to do. And I and I believe I do it well and I like to do that. So when I go to a show that's a one off, I'm when I go to a show that is a one off. I feel like, oh, I can relax. Oh, oh OK. Okay, it's just about the characters. All right, cool. All right, what's this scene about? Oh, yeah, got it, baby. Let's go. You know, like, and, and so I just I get to relax a little bit, and 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 the pressure's not on me. And uh, so yeah, I need to do those every now and then so that I don't blow a gasket. And also, I, I'm a little more choosy now. I only want to work on stuff that is well written and and with people I respect, and uh, and where I can learn something, and I can. Um, um, grow. That's really what my, my approach is now. Well, Ed Hollywood always likes to put people in lanes, but you've done a number of hour longs as well, including the Great Lodge 49, etc. Talk about having that ability to not just be in the one lane as the comedy guy. Doing hour longs, one, I, I do, like I said, I do love dramas, but I also think that comedies, the comedies that I do are not straight comedies. I think, you know, I wouldn't call them dramedies, but they have uh, real characters. Uh, they have uh, real stakes um, and, and, and real, real, real stories. And, um, and I also think comedy in general has become darker, right? And, and become a little, uh, a, more, a little more real. And so I think for me, when I go do an hour long or I go do a drama, it's, it, it allows me to keep that level of honesty that I can bring back to the comedy and vice versa. And I can bring that level of comedy to the one hour drama. And, and so I never really attacked 
comedy directing as 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 anything other than what is the character's needs, what is the character's wants, and how do we get there? Um, and it can be done in a funny way or not funny way. But for me, a lot of the rules stay the same. And I and I also visually don't shoot comedies. I try not to shoot them too flat. You know, I try to give them a little bit of cinema, a little bit. You know, um, uh, don't want to get in the way of the comedy, but I, 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 I definitely want to make sure that it's not, you know, sitcom-y. Well, we always like to end these interviews with the same question. What are you watching and enjoying right now? Oh, oof, a lot. Um, I'm going to give you the, the no, I'm not going to say whether it's good or bad. I'm just going to just tell you what I, I'm watching. Um, Dave on Hulu. FX. Dave, which I have to say, I love that show. Lovecraft Country. And the things that I've binged. Oh, man. Uh, Warrior Nun. Korra, <laughs> the animated show uh, about the last airbender. The Legend of Korra. Oh, my gosh. Um, obviously, but, you know, obviously Rick and Morty. I, I, I can't even, you know. You know, I, 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 they just frustrate me in such a good way that like, ah, a month later, here's another episode. Ah, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe next year. I, but it, I, as soon as it comes out, I got it. I got I love Yeah. So that's what I'm watching. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. We appreciate it, Mo. Well, thank you, Leslie. Thank you, Daniel. All episodes of Woke Season 1 are available on Hulu starting September 9th. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's new launches are Season 2 of The Boys on Amazon, Space Drama Away, Julie and the Phantoms, and then The Home Edit, all on Netflix, Knots and Crosses on Peacock, Season 2 of LA's Finest on Spectrum. Of course, you just heard our interview about Woke, so we have Woke launching on Hulu. And then Power Book 2, Ghost on Stars. Dan, what you got? Lots going on. Well, up first, let's talk about uh, Power Book 2, uh, Ghost, and a reminder to check out episode 84 for a terrific interview with power mastermind Courtney Kemp, which definitely talks about all things power, but but ultimately talks about all things television and all things America. It's a great interview. Uh, The show itself, as you probably gathered from our interview, really does follow directly out of the end of the original Power series. So if you just want to think of it as continuing to watch Power, you can totally do that. Uh, I watched a couple episodes of the new season, not really enough for a review, but enough to have thoughts. And it feels like Power. It's, it's as simple as that with a couple new actors added. Mary J. Blige has a good character, and I really love the part that they've given Method Man in this. Uh, I always enjoy Method Man as an actor, and he has a really fun part as a high-powered defense attorney who is representing Tariq's mother in the court case that stems from the end of power. And it's just a lot of fun between that and Teenage Bounty Hunters, which I'll apparently just keep plugging. uh, It is a really good late summer, early fall for Method Man, which can only mean one thing, that a Method and Red reboot has to be right around the corner. Bring it on. Bring on my Method and Red reboot. Okay, so that was Power Book 2. Season 2 of The Boys on Amazon uh, premieres on Friday. 
And this is one where if you liked the first season, you will like the second season. But if you felt as if the first season was too glib, too dark, too gritty, too whatever, it continues to be exactly what it is. I, I believe that my review described the show as explodier than ever before. And, <laughs> and definitely it features more popping human bodies than the first season did. That is a major part of the second season. Uh, and th it, this is a show that is really, really invested in its gore and its violence and in its snarky and cynical view of corporate America and 2020. And as such, it is almost certainly a superhero story for our times. I also still find it fairly sour at points and its tendency towards sadism and occasionally misogyny rubs me the wrong way, even if those things are kind of built into the darkness of the show. And sometimes it's even a commentary on those things. Uh, but there is no question that if you liked the first season of The Boys, you will continue to to like it. Um, the space drama Away, I watched three episodes of it, and it's a it's a strange show because sometimes it does things well. I think a lot of its space action is very well directed and produced. I think Hilary Swank is a really strong lead for a show like this. But basically, any time it talks about the characters' lives outside of their mission to Mars, I, I badly wanted it to stop doing those things. And the first episode is like 57 minutes long, and it felt like it was a... Felt like it was a lifetime, uh, but I still did keep finding things about it that were entertaining and interesting to me. So is it explodier? Uh, it, it is not explodier. It is built. Well, season two will have to be explodier because there's nothing to compare it to. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, let's see. Knots and crosses on Peacock. It is a alt history about what happened if Africa colonized England 750 years ago. But it's also a teenage YA romance. Uh I thought a lot was interesting about its world that it was building, probably raises more questions than it answers. And my goodness, the romance at the center of it is just utterly lifeless. So it's it's a show that has a lot to peak interest and it's occasionally provocative and it does absolutely have things to do with the current state of race relations in the UK and here just it is still a YA TV series, and it doesn't do YA very well. Uh, let's see. What else? Uh, I think Woke has some things to say. I think it is cute and funny, and I always like Lamorne Morris. I would have liked to have laughed more, but it's got things that are interesting and discussable. And again, Lamorne Morris is good. Whole cast is good. Stick around and Rose McIver pops up. Uh my God, that's a lot of TV. Leslie, what the heck is the home edit? Because uh, because you seem really excited about that one, and I have no clue what it is. If you are interested in organizational shows, if, if you loved tidying up with Marie Kondo, um, then the home edit is for you, and you already know exactly what it is. So uh, <laughs> I will say it's based on um, an Instagram account um, where basically these two great designers kind of go into celebrity homes and help create and organize them. And it's just go check out the home edit on Instagram. And if you kind of take one peek at that, well, that's the show. So I'm very excited about that. I'm an organizational nerd. So bring that on. <laughs> gimme, gimme, gimme. <laughs> Excellent. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations and not mine, please be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter.
Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. And if you like us, please continue to spread the word and let the Hollywood Reporter know. As we've discussed on the show for months, you know, the industry is changing rapidly every day and we are not immune from those changes and we definitely do not want to be unrenewed. So continue to, to be vocal and let us know on Twitter. Let us know on, on Apple with ratings and feedback. And yeah, this is uh, we're, we're putting up the bad signal here, Dan. But we appreciated all the people who responded last week. And uh, so, yeah, you know, subscribe to us, rate us, write little reviewy things, all those things you're doing. We appreciate it. Um, as always, say hi to us on Twitter. We're happy to chat with you. And as Leslie might have mentioned a couple times, if you have questions for future mailbag segments, you can email us at TV's top five at THR dot com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR Com. Shout out to our producer, Matt Whitehurst. And until next week. Until next week. And, and I second that great shout out to our dear producer, Matt Whitehurst. And to our listeners, thank you for being so supportive over the last couple of months. And it's been a year plus, And we hope to continue to do the show for a very, very long time. So thank you and stay vocal. Join me. On the turning point, up close and personal with leaders and get to know what makes their metal and fiber. I am Keshav Murugesh and I look forward to unraveling greatness with you. The Turning Point Podcast is now on Spotify.